Chapter Twenty Five of Marius the Epicurean, Volume Two by Walter Pater. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Five, Sunt Lacrimae Rerum. It was become a habit with Marius, one of his modernisms, developed by his assistance at the emperor's conversations with himself, to keep a register of the movements of his own private thoughts and humors, not continuously, indeed, yet sometimes for lengthy intervals during which it was no idle self-indulgence, but a necessity of his intellectual life, to confess himself with an intimacy seemingly rare among the ancients, ancient writers at all events, having been jealous for the most part of affording us so much as a glimpse of that interior self, which in many cases would have actually doubled the interest of their objective informations. If a particular tutelary or genius, writes Marius, according to old belief, walks through life beside each one of us, mine is very certainly a capricious creature. He fills one with wayward unaccountable yet quite irresistible humours, and seems always to be in collusion with some outward circumstance, often trivial enough in itself, the condition of the weather forsooth, the people one meets by chance, the things one happens to overhear them say. Veritable enodioi, symboloi, or omens by the wayside, as the old Greeks fancied, to push on the unreasonable prepossessions of the moment into weighty motives. It was doubtless a quite explicable physical fatigue that presented me to myself, on awakening this morning, so lacklustre and trite. But I must needs take my petulance, contrasting it with my accustomed morning hopefulness, as a sign of the aging of appetite, of a decay in the very capacity of enjoyment. We need some imaginative stimulus, some not impossible ideal such as may shape vague hope and transform it into effective desire, to carry us year after year without disgust, through the routine work which is so large a part of life. Then, how if appetite, be it for real or ideal, should itself fail one after a while? Ah, yes, it is of cold always that men die, and on some of us it creeps very gradually. In truth I can remember just such a lacklustre condition of feeling once or twice before. But I note that it was accompanied then by an odd indifference, as the thought of them occurred to me in regard to the sufferings of others, a kind of callousness, so unusual with me as at once to mark the humour it accompanied as a palpably morbid one, that could not last. Were those sufferings great or little, I ask myself then, of more real consequence to them than mine to me? as I remind myself that nothing that will end is really long, long enough to be thought of importance. But today my own sense of fatigue, the pity I conceive for myself, disposed me strongly to a tenderness for others. For a moment the whole world seemed to present itself as a hospital of sick persons, many of them sick in mind, all of whom it would be a brutality not to humour, not to indulge. Why, when I went out to walk off my wayward fancies, did I confront the very sort of incident, my unfortunate genius had surely beckoned it from afar to vex me, likely to irritate them further. A party of men were coming down the street. They were leading a fine racehorse, a handsome beast, but badly hurt somewhere in the circus, and useless. They were taking him to slaughter, and I think the animal knew it. He cast such looks as if of mad appeal to those who passed him, as he went among the strangers to whom his former owner had committed him, to die, in his beauty and pride, for just that one mischance or fault. Although the morning air was still so animating and pleasant to snuff, 
I could have fancied a human soul in the creature swelling against its luck, and I had come across the incident just when it would figure to me as the very symbol of our poor humanity, in its capacities for pain, its wretched accidents, and those imperfect sympathies which can never quite identify us with one another, the very power of utterance and appeal to others seeming to fail us, in proportion as our sorrows come home to ourselves, are really our own. We are constructed for suffering. What proofs of it does but one day afford, if we care to note them as we go? A whole long chaplet of sorrowful mysteries. Sunt lacrimae rerum, et mentum mortalia tangunt. Men's fortunes touch us. The little children of one of those institutions for the support of orphans now become fashionable among us by way of memorial of eminent persons deceased, are going in long file along the street, on their way to a holiday in the country. They halt, and count themselves with an air of triumph to show that they are all there. Their gay chatter has disturbed a little group of peasants, a young woman and her husband, who have brought the old mother, now past work and witless, to place her in a house provided for such afflicted people. They are fairly affectionate, but anxious how the thing they have to do may go. Hope only she may permit them to leave her there behind quietly. And the poor old soul is excited by the noise made by the children, and partly aware of what is going to happen with her. She too begins to count. One, two, three, five on her trembling fingers, misshapen by a life of toil. Yes, yes, and twice five make ten, they say, to pacify her. It is her last appeal to be taken home again, her proof that all is not yet up with her, that she is at all events still as capable as those joyous children. At the baths a party of laborers are at work upon one of the great brick furnaces in a cloud of black dust. A frail young child has brought food for one of them and sits apart, waiting till his father comes, watching the labor, but with a sorrowful distaste for the din and dirt. He is regarding wistfully his own place in the world there before him. His mind, as he watches, is grown up for a moment, and he foresees, as it were, in that moment, all the long tale of days, of early awakenings, of his own coming life of drudgery at work like this. A man comes along carrying a boy whose rough work has already begun, the only child whose presence beside him sweetened the father's toil a little. The boy has been badly injured by a fall of brickwork, yet with an effort he rides boldly on his father's shoulders. It will be the way of natural affection to keep him alive as long as possible, though with that miserably shattered body. Ah, with us still, and feeling our care beside him, and yet surely not without a heart-breaking sigh of relief, alike from him and them, when the end comes. On the alert for incidents like these, yet of necessity passing them by on the other side, I find it hard to get rid of a sense that I for one have failed in love. I could yield to the humour till I seemed to have had my share in those great public cruelties, the shocking legal crimes which are on record, like that cold-blooded slaughter according to law of the four hundred slaves in the reign of Nero, because one of their number was thought to have murdered his master. The reproach of that, together with the kind of facile apologies those who had no share in the deed may have made for it, as they went about quietly on their own affairs that day, seems to come very close to me as I think upon it, and to how many of those now actually around me whose life is a sore one must I be indifferent, if I ever become aware of their soreness at all. 
to some perhaps the necessary conditions of my own life may cause me to be opposed in a kind of natural conflict regarding those interests which actually determine the happiness of theirs i would that a stronger love might arise in my heart yet there is plenty of charity in the world my patron the stoic emperor has made it even fashionable to celebrate one of his brief returns to rome lately from the war over and above a largesse of gold pieces to all who would the public debts were forgiven he made a nice show of it for once the romans entertained themselves with a good-natured spectacle and the whole town came to see the great bonfire in the forum into which all bonds and evidence of debt were thrown on delivery by the emperor himself many private creditors following his example that was done well enough but still the feeling returns to me that no charity of ours can get at a certain natural unkindness which i find in things themselves when i first came to rome eager to observe its religion especially its antiquities of religious usage i assisted at the most curious perhaps of them all the most distinctly marked with that immobility which is a sort of ideal in the roman religion the ceremony took place at a singular spot some miles distant from the city among the low hills on the bank of the tiber beyond the aurelian gate there in a little wood of venerable trees piously allowed their own way age after age ilex and cypress remaining where they fell at last one over the other and all caught in that early maytime under a riotous tangle of wild clematis was to be found a magnificent sanctuary in which the members of the arvile college assembled themselves on certain days the axe never touched those trees nay it was forbidden to introduce any iron thing whatsoever within the precincts not only because the deities of these quiet places hate to be disturbed by the harsh noise of metal but also in memory of that better age the lost golden age the homely age of the potters of which the central act of the festival was a commemoration the preliminary ceremonies were long and complicated but of a character familiar enough peculiar to the time and place was the solemn exposition after lavation of hands processions backwards and forwards and certain changes of vestments of the identical earthen vessels veritable relics of the old religion of numa the vessels from which the holy numa himself had eaten and drunk set forth above a kind of altar amid a cloud of flowers and incense and many light for the veneration of the credulous or the faithful they were in fact cups or vases of burnt clay rude in form and the religious veneration thus offered to them expressed men's desire to give honor to a simpler age before iron had found place in human life the persuasion that that age was worth remembering a hope that it might come again that anuma and his age of gold would return has been the hope or the dream of some in every period yet if he did come back or any equivalent of his presence he could but weaken and by no means smite through that root of evil certainly of sorrow of outraged human sense in things which one must carefully distinguish from all preventable accidents death and the little perpetual daily dyings which have something of its sting he must necessarily leave untouched and methinks that were all the rest of man's life framed entirely to his liking he would straightway begin to sadden himself over the fate say of the flowers for there is there has come to be since numa lived perhaps a capacity for sorrow in his heart which grows with all the growth alike of the individual and of the race in intellectual delicacy and power and which will find its aliment 
Of that sort of golden age, indeed, one discerns even now a trace here and there. Often have I maintained that in this generous southern country, at least, Epicureanism is the special philosophy of the poor. How little I myself really need when people leave me alone with the intellectual powers at work serenely. The drops of falling water, a few wild flowers with their priceless fragrance, a few tufts even of half-dead leaves changing color in the quiet of a room that has but light and shadow in it, these, for a susceptible mind, might well do duty for all the glory of Augustus. I notice sometimes what I conceive to be the precise character of the fondness of the roughest working people for their young children, a fine appreciation not only of their serviceable affection, but of their visible graces, and indeed in this country the children are almost always worth looking at. I see daily in fine weather a child like a delicate nosegay running to meet the rudest of brickmakers as he comes from work. She is not at all afraid to hang upon his rough hand, and through her he reaches out to, he makes his own something from that strange region so distant from him yet so real of the world's refinement. What is a finer soul, of finer stuff in things, and demands delicate touching, to him the delicacy of the little child represents that. It initiates him into that. There surely is a touch of the secular gold, of a perpetual age of gold. But then again think for a moment with what a hard humor at the nature of things his struggle for bare life will go on, if the child should happen to die. I observed today under one of the archways of the baths two children at play, a little seriously, a fair girl and her crippled younger brother. Two toy chairs and a little table and sprigs of fur set upright in the sand for a garden. They played at housekeeping. Well, the girl thinks her life a perfectly good thing in the service of this crippled brother, but she will have a jealous lover in time, and the boy, though his face is not altogether unpleasant, is, after all, a hopeless cripple. For there is a certain grief in things as they are, in man as he has come to be, as he certainly is, over and above those griefs of circumstance which are in a measure removable, some inexplicable shortcoming or misadventure on the part of nature itself, death and old age as it must needs be, and that watching for their approach which makes every stage of life like a dying over and over again. Almost all death is painful, and in everything that comes to an end a touch of death, and therefore of wretched coldness struck home to one of remorse, of loss, and parting, of outraged attachments. Given faultless men and women, given a perfect state of society which should have no need to practice on men's susceptibilities for its own selfish ends, adding one turn more to the wheel of the great rack for its own interest or amusement, there would still be this evil in the world, of a certain necessary sorrow and desolation felt, just in proportion to the moral or nervous perfection men have attained to. And what we need in the world over against that is a certain permanent and general power of compassion, humanity's standing force of self-pity, as an elementary ingredient of our social atmosphere, if we are to live in it at all. I wonder sometimes in what way man has cajoled himself into the bearing of his burden thus far, seeing how every step in the capacity of apprehension his labor has won for him from age to age, must needs increase his dejection. It is as if the increase of knowledge were but an increasing revelation of the radical hopelessness of his position, and I would that there were one even as I behind this vain show of things. At all events, the actual conditions of our life being as they are, and the capacity for suffering so large a principle in things, since the only principle, perhaps, to which we may always safely trust is a ready sympathy with the pain one actually sees, 
it follows that the practical and effective difference between men will lie in their power of insight into those conditions, their power of sympathy. The future will be with those who have most of it, while for the present, as I persuade myself, those who have much of it have something to hold by even in the dissolution of a world, or in that dissolution of self which is for everyone no less than the dissolution of the world it represents for him. Nearly all of us, I suppose, have had our moments, in which any effective sympathy for us on the part of others has seemed impossible, in which our pain has seemed a stupid outrage upon us like some overwhelming physical violence, from which we could take refuge at best only in some mere general sense of goodwill, somewhere in the world, perhaps. And then to one's surprise, the discovery of that goodwill, if it were only in a not unfriendly animal, may seem to have explained, to have actually justified to us the fact of our pain. There have been occasions certainly when I have felt that if others cared for me as I cared for them, it would be not so much a consolation as an equivalent for what one has lost or suffered, a realized profit on the summing up of one's accounts, a touching of that absolute ground amid all the changes of phenomena, such as our philosophers have of late confessed themselves quite unable to discover. In the mere clinging of human creatures to each other, nay, in one's own solitary self-pity amid the effects even of what might appear irredeemable loss, I seem to touch the eternal. Something in that pitiful contact, something new and true, fact or apprehension of fact, is adduced, which, on a review of all the perplexities of life, satisfies our moral sense, and removes that appearance of unkindness in the soul of things themselves, and assures us that not everything has been in vain. And I know not how, but in the thought thus suggested, I seem to take up and re-knit myself to a well-remembered hour, when by some gracious accident, it was on a journey, all things about me fell into a more perfect harmony than is their wont. Everything seemed to be for a moment, after all, almost for the best. Through the train of my thoughts, one against another, it was as if I became aware of the dominant power of another person in controversy, wrestling with me. I seemed to be come round to the point at which I left off then. The antagonist is closed with me again. A protest comes out of the very depths of man's radically hopeless condition in the world, with the energy of one of those suffering yet prevailing deities, of which old poetry tells. Dared one hope that there is a heart, even as ours, in that divine assistant of one's thoughts? A heart even as mine, behind this vain show of things? End of chapter 25 Recording by Philip Gould